Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161 CER174, World Colonialism and Indigenous Ed. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. Easy Chair number 284, February the 3rd, 1993. Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushdooney, and I are going to discuss the very important subject of colonialism. Now, colonialism is not a new concept in history. There have been uh, colonial powers in the past, such as the Greek city-states, who created colonies throughout Asia Minor. And colonialism is not necessarily identifiable with imperialism, although sometimes the two have gone together. Most people, however, when they talk about colonialism, have reference to the colonialism of the European powers, primarily in Africa, from about the, well, mid-1800s, basically, to 1960. That particular form of colonialism began in part if not to a major degree in response to a plea by the great Scottish missionary, David Livingston. David Livingston saw the appalling condition that was endemic to Africa. And by the way, the slave trade was not primarily to Europe and the Americas, it had existed for centuries back to the remotest uh, days of history from Africa to the Middle East and especially to the Far East, India, China, and other points. Livingston said that what Africa needed Above all else was Christianity, civilization, and commerce. And he appealed to the European powers to undertake uh, colonialism in Africa as a work of benevolence, as a charitable work to help their fellow human beings people to whom Livingston was in particular attached. Now, it is true that some uh, colonial enterprises were at times ugly, most notably and fearfully Belgian Congo under Leopold. The Germans made some bad blunders in their colonies, primarily because of their zeal to discipline the blacks, that is, to teach them a disciplined way of life. 
and they did not realize that the blacks they were dealing with in the Cameroons and elsewhere did not have the disciplined heritage of the Germans. As a result, their policy backfired badly. But basically, the colonial work of France and of Britain was on the whole a plus. It brought health and education and made possible the growth of the Christian missionary work to those areas of Africa where they were in power. In recent years, of course, it has been impossible to get a good word into any kind of dialogue uh, open to the general public in favor of colonialism. Now, we have a return to colonialism under a variety of terms. What we're doing in Somalia is simply colonialism, UN colonialism. And it will not deal with a basic problem that the Somali peoples were a group of tribes and they have progressively broken down to those tribes and their leaders called warlords are uh, jockeying for power and for territory. And the same thing is happening all through Africa. We have paid no attention to the fact that we have had UN troops, for example, in Cambodia for some years now. They are supposed to pull out at the end of this year. They have accomplished nothing. First, the Khmer Rouge still controls a sizable segment of Cambodia or Kampuchea, and the minute the UN troops leave, they will take it over, particularly because the UN troops were able to find the other factions cooperative, and they were able to disarm them. But the Khmer Rouge refused to be disarmed, and the UN troops didn't dare tackle them. So we have a disaster there that we've created in Cambodia, and we're doing nothing to tell the truth of it to the general public. We're acting as though we have suddenly embarked on a new noble course by going into Somalia. Well, with that general introduction, Douglas, would you like to carry the ball for a while? Well, my uh, memory of the term colonialism uh, really spans my education, which was uh, after World War II, and the, uh, the word colonial or colonialism became an epithet. Yes. And... Uh, so there was really not a great deal of serious study uh, in public school system that I went through uh, regarding colonialism in a, in a positive aspect. It was always dealt with in a negative way. And it's only been in more recent years from uh, reading that I've 
found out what the benefits were to both the indigenous people that were that were uh, already in the new area that was colonized, and also it's been largely ignored that uh, colonialization for the country that uh, the people came from acted as a safety valve. It, in many cases, kept them from having civil wars over irreconcilable differences. It allowed people an escape route uh, that could not deal with uh, the power structure in the country that they uh, emigrated from. So the uh, the uh, colonial system has a lot of different uh, a lot of different meanings uh, to people. Otto. Well, of course, I remember the colonial world, and my family were were engaged in Scots. My branch of the Scott clan was active in Jamaica for almost 300 years. They were merchants. And I remember when, uh, of course, before World War II, when the Atlantic powers colonies were still intact. And there was a great deal more goodwill between the colonists and uh, the, the uh, people they administered than the modern world can recall or will believe. The fruits of European civilization were extended around the world, which is something that no other civilization ever did. The Chinese, China for a long time, had the largest empire and the richest empire in the world. And the Chinese people were forbidden to leave and foreigners were forbidden to enter that empire. And all their inventions, uh, gunpowder, printing, paper money, which is one of theirs, all kinds of things, were state secrets not to be shown or to be given to any foreigner, the secret of silk, so forth. The Caucasian people of Europe were the only people in all history to distribute the fruits of their efforts and make them available to every other group. And the colonial system extended the lifespan not only of the colonies but of every group in the world. Medicine, sanitation, bridges, roads, factories, agriculture, everything else. The, the black people in Africa, especially in Central Africa, were did not really have a very long colonial experience. They the uh, Europeans penetrated beyond the coast into the heart of Africa only in the latter part of the 19th century, and they left in 1960. So you have a period of maybe three generations. Three generations were not enough to educate them. The English really thought they had done it in Nigeria, 
they had a system of law, they had a constitution, they had judges with wigs, they had their leaders go to Cambridge and Oxford and so forth, they had cities, uh, they had Lagos, they had everything, they had uh, oil even. And yet, after they left, within a year, there was a civil war which cost one million dead. And it's very interesting that the Americans have never really studied the black races. They never, for instance, I was in a home in New Orleans of a man who was very well-to-do and had a, a very good library. He had, in fact, I was told, he had the best library on black-white relations in the country. And I went over and looked at the books, and they, every one of them dealt with American black and white relations. Now, all the Europeans, or the Western Euro Atlantic Europeans, had their efforts with the blacks. The French, the Portuguese intermarried. That's how they solved it. The Germans, as, as Rush said, the English, and, Spanish. and the, the Spanish, Italian, and the Italians. And all of them, in their various ways, tried to bring them up. And yet, nobody here has ever looked at any of those experiments, although we have all these so-called social scientists, a name that all, a term always makes me laugh. They have never looked at the experience of Europe with the black races in trying to devise an approach here to overcome, let us say, realistically, our neglect in that area. We didn't educate them before uh, when they were slaves. And after they were released, we didn't educate them properly. We've never really made a serious effort to help them in that regard. And this is a national disgrace which we've never actually been able to confront. What we've done is to desegregate. Well, that's not the same. Education is something which is not easy to attain, and it's not easy to administer, as you know. It's not fun, but we've never really made the effort. So the colonial powers did. They did stop slavery. They did educate them. Western Europe did a much better job than we did. Well, their health care system in Africa was better under colonialism than it is today. We should not be proud in this area. We've done a lousy job. And we see the results. Well, I think the flaw is that uh, people in this country tend to see peoples in Africa as all one people. Yes. Yes. And, and they fail to see, you know, the tribal rivalries which took place in Nigeria and is taking place in South Africa today and in various other countries in Africa, that as soon as there is uh, the colonial powers left, their social structure broke down to tribal warfare. And some of the tribes are uh, more energetic than others. There's a difference in the tribes, which they paid. The Europeans, colonials, did learn those differences. And if you go to South Africa today, they will tell you the differences. They, they know the headdresses, they know the costumes, and they know the behavior and the pattern. We've never even done that with the Indians. Most, When I was a boy and went to public school 
for brief periods here in the United States. The only thing they told me was that these fellows were making pottery and, and weaving blankets and all kinds of nonsense. They never told us the difference between the tribes, the Iroquois and the Apache or anything else. We have not seriously studied these areas that we should. Well, one of the appalling facts of our day is that most people have no knowledge of what good has been accomplished by colonialism. India is a classic case. India has had problems of a very serious sort. And it was united under the Mughals by sheer brute power. The Mughals are idealized because tourists can go and see uh, the famous uh, Taj Taj Mahal, things like that. Oh, they must have been a great people to have uh, built something like that, which was a tomb Mm. for one of the many, many women that the emperor had. Well, when the British took India, by default, because the British East India Company was there, and little by little to maintain its work it had to protect itself and it in the process of defending itself from attack at uh, port cities wound up conquering an area or some local maharaja asking for protection so little by little the East India Company developed into an empire which then Britain took over but at the time that they did. Sati, the burning of widows, was routine. The British ended it, and it is reviving. Human sacrifices were routine, and that's reviving. Mark, you can tell us about what you learned about, about the dam in uh, Bangladesh. Bangladesh, when I'm through. Uh, minorities were protected and so on and on. In the 1930s, at the height of the British power in India, they had a total of 5,000 British civil servants and military officers to govern that vast subcontinent and its huge population. The rest was all done with native troops, native officials, all trained by the English, very commonly at Oxford and Cambridge. So the idea that Britain was keeping India in bondage forcibly is nonsense. 5,000 whites could have been eliminated overnight, any time. So... The story of India is one that can be repeated in place after place. 
Indochina, the stories of that are amazing. Do you want to tell now about uh, Bangladesh and what you found out there? Oh, this was ten years ago. Uh, um, I was there and talked to someone who was talking about a, a major dam project that had occurred a few years earlier. I believe... Um, if my memory serves me, it was some sort of a United Nations development project. The United, uh, United States contributed a lot of money to it. Um, in the course of building this dam, the local tribal leaders sacrificed human lives towards the success of this project to, as uh, one of their uh, old rituals, and now in this huge development project, lot human lives were sacrificed to ensure the success and prosperity of this endeavor. But uh, when I was there ten years ago, I believe there were 700 million people, and I think I read now that there are 830 or 40 million people there. And I forget how many dialects <coughs> there was, but I, I, I believe there's something like two or three hundred dialects. So it's it's uh, it's a country <laughs> as a political unit, and it, it's a it's it's a it's a place that could explode at any time, and, I, and it well it has it was beginning then and and it's continuing now. That's true in many areas. The maps are very artificial, and it's uh, sort of a a leftover of colonialism that we regard these uh, artificial distinctions on the map as somehow legitimate boundaries. Yes, uh, you're, uh, someone has uh, said of late that India, sooner or later, is going to break up into a number of countries. Do you remember, Mark, you reported on uh, the persecution and the seizure of the lands of the Chittagong Hill tribes, who were about 50% Christian by the Bengalis? Right, they were a, a, a tribal minority um not part of the ben Bengali uh, race, you might say, in Bangladesh. So they were they were treated very badly, and they were simply told, even though for for many years, beginning they had been protected under colonialism. They had been guaranteed the the, the rights to to their traditional tribal lands. Uh, since the end of colonialism, the new Bengali government came in and thought absolutely nothing of these tribals and decided that these lands could be better used by Bengali people. So the tribals in the Chittagong Hills were basically being pushed onto, into um, internment camps, and they were being assigned certain areas of which they could farm, some of which were a number of miles from where they were required to, to be at night in these camps. So uh, their rights that had been recognized and preserved uh, under colonialism were now being brushed brushed away by the democratic majority. It was your article on that that helped uh, together with the work that Howard Amundsen did to crystallize enough opinion so that uh, the Chittagong Hill people at least for the time were returned to their lands. Well, of course, because we were a colony and took great pride in breaking away from Britain, 
Americans were taught that colonialism was evil and never really faced up to the realities of the Indians, put them on reservations eventually, but never really faced up to the task of civilizing the Indians here as the Spaniards civilized the Indians of Mexico as much as they could. And uh, Spain was the great colonial power. It had colonies for 400 years. After Rome, their colonies lasted the longest. The Philippines still have a Spanish culture, Spanish Catholic culture, and the same is true of Latin America. We never admitted the value of the Spanish culture. Mm -hmm. And by failing to admit it and failing to imitate it, we made grave mistakes in our dealings with the blacks and the Indians. The greatest mistake we made for the whole world, though, was to insist that the Atlantic nations give up their colonies after World War II. And in the process, we planted the idea that it was inherently unjust for white people to rule over any other race. Mm -hmm. So it was a racial argument that we used. Now, I was charged with being in favor of apartheid, and I said, no, I'm not. But I'm in favor of the best government for the greatest number of people, irrespective of the racial component of the rulers. There is no question in my mind that the white people of South Africa could do a better job for all the races in South Africa than the blacks can do. And that simple proposition has been very difficult to propose to an American because they get all confused with questions of equality and sentimentality. Now, the reaction of the black minority in the United States, it's a pretty big minority, it's 30 million, to every concession that has been made since the dynasty of uh, Lyndon Johnson has been to demand more and to be angrier. I mean, if we gave them everything they asked for, they would then turn around and murder us, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Because their reaction is that any concession comes from weakness. And if you're weak, they'll attack. I think the South Africans are going to find that out the hard way. Indeed they are. You mentioned the American Indians, Otto. very little that we read tells the truth about them. They practiced cannibalism in a great many instances and also slavery. They were slave owners. Of course. Uh, before any all white all American all ever adopted tribes it. Yes. slave owners. Uh, it goes with it. Yes. So that it has become uh, more or less forbidden to say that uh, this was practiced by Indians or by Africans or by any minority group. Only uh, the whites have done it, and theirs was particularly evil, supposedly, although it was probably the most benevolent form of slavery the world has ever seen. Well, 
we changed the world after World War II by ins by destroying the colonial system. We joined yes. with the, with the the communists to destroy the colonial properties of Western Europe, but we condoned the Marxist occupation of Eastern Europe and making colonies out of those countries. Yes. That was all right. But we have now we're looking at the results of decolonization. Uh, there are millions of black Africans wandering around in that continent now that are starving and diseased mm -hmm. because that used to have homes and that used to be well-fed and used to take care of themselves under the colonial system. We have brought untold suffering to the world yes. in the name of goodness. We have not admitted our error. We have not apologized for it. We don't feel guilty about it. And we're in the process here of decolonizing, in a way, internally and failing in our duty to educate these newcomers and these minorities to Western <coughs> European levels. Yes. And we're paying the price at home and abroad. Now, what are we doing in Somalia? Mm -hmm. Red Cross work, social work, how long will we stay? What is it going to benefit us? Why are we doing it? None of these questions have been answered. Yeah. I think we should uh, consider Somalia a bit more because it is critical. We have uh, walked into a swamp with lots of quicksand and one person knowledgeable about Somalia has doubted that we will ever solve their problems and get out uh, with any credit. At least the colonialism that uh, Livingston favored began with a premise that Christianity would be promoted, that there was no future in any respect for these areas of Africa without Christianity. Of course, that we don't consider at all now. In fact, problems are made for the missions that do exist, and very few do now. Africa and other areas have been closed steadily since World War II. We're actually helping Muslims in Somalia, yes. and we're our press has taken the Muslim side in the Yugoslavian conflict. Yes. So we're in the strange position of helping people who detest our civilization and our faith. Exactly, and we're doing the same thing with regard to Armenia, Azerbaijan, and uh, Turkey uh, are... Uh, happy with the fact that the European powers in Washington have placed themselves firmly on their side for uh, a very strange reason, namely they want to be on the right side with Islam. They don't want to alienate it. Well, they're alienating it every day of course. the pro-Israeli policy. Of course. But they're going to make it up for it by sacrificing Christians. But uh, Somalia has a 
very difficult problem because we insist on seeing it as a nation. Uh, and uh, none of the African countries are nations in any true sense of the word. Exactly. They have to be seen as tribal groups. We've destroyed Nigeria, which was a great power, and today the European-made uh, uh, cities uh, are surviving only where the European money is flowing. The British uh, courts are now being destroyed by termites. <coughs> the courts and their chambers and all are gone. And we allowed the uh, massacre by the Islamic population of vast numbers of Christians immediately after the end of colonialism, the Igbos. Yes. Well, here in the United States, a very strange development. The black people of the United States have become convinced that the white people have been placed on earth by God to take care of them. That it is our duty, our holy Christian duty, to support all the black people. They argue that we should bring in more Haitians. We've already brought in a million from Haiti, and the island only has three and a half million. They want us to bring them all. And then, of course, all the rest of the Caribbean stew will follow. Yes. Now, we have never really faced up to the results, the consequences of having implanted that idea that we are responsible for their lives. My own opinion as a Christian is that God put black men on earth to take care of their own wives and children. That's their duty. And it's our duty to take care of ours. And if we go beyond that, beyond the business of being as good as we can in our own area, all we do is open up a chain of evils. Now, how are we going to get out of this? Yes, and what they don't say when they talk about these people of Haiti is that Haiti is one of the main locales in the world of AIDS. Well, we're actually listening to men who tell us that we should bring in the disease of the world. Yes. That is our duty. That's the reason they wanted to come here just uh, within the last couple of days. Uh, there was a boatload about ready to leave of about 250 of them, and they checked and found out that they all had AIDS. Oh, really? So they wanted to come to the United States to get medical treatment. But I think where the mistake was that all of the Caribbean nations took a look at what we did with Puerto Rico when we extended our welfare system to Puerto Rico. They all get checks. And the rest of the Caribbeans take a look at that and think, gee, that's not a bad idea. Well, the colonial powers, only Portugal made the mistake of intermarriage. And it was a mistake, because within three generations, Portugal ceased to be a first-class power. Mm -hmm. And they were great in their day. They were the great explorers, the great seamen, and so forth. And they had a very high culture. When the Portuguese finally withdrew from East Africa, 
those who held Portuguese citizenship went to Portugal itself, and the Portuguese in Lisbon were astonished that they were all black. And the black people in Africa did not forgive the Portuguese, even though the Portuguese intermarried. They insisted that they get out. And we are running into this here. We're running into the argument which is now arising in the fringes, and not only the fringes of the black community, that to, to become successful in the white man's world is to become whitey. And the unsuccessful blacks are very resentful of those of their race who move upward. Tom Sowell, for instance, is in, and Walter Williams are always castigated. Yes, and now there is a major movement in Africa and in Jamaica, and it'll be in this country very shortly, that the white Europeans and the Americans must make reparations to black Africa and to the blacks in the Americas. Well, I'm sure we have some who would be willing to do it if they could use our money. Yes. The, uh, after World War II, you know, the, the word colonialism became synonymous with exploitation. And this... Uh, Propaganda has been fed every public school kid since World War II, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, there hasn't been a great deal of study of the positive effects of colonialism. Uh, people or scholars just don't feel that it's a popular subject to deal with. It's a dangerous subject. Well, sure. Mm -hmm. But if you're a professor, you can lose your job. The, the, the interesting uh, irony is that uh, our going to Somalia... Uh, there's an interesting geostrategic, uh, something of geostrategic value in Somalia, and that is that the Russians built a huge air base down there. Uh, Somalia being a non-Arab country and that air base being a convenient distance from the Persian Gulf makes one wonder uh, uh, about the exploitation uh, angle of colonialism are going to Somalia may have other purposes. It may have, but we have a difficulty if we're going to assume colonial responsibilities as Paul Johnson recommended. <coughs> the English had 400 years to get acquainted with the world. And they got acquainted with the world, they, they acquired their international empire almost by accident because they sent the trade went first, commerce went first, and it, the army came in later. The church and the traders went first, and after they, they had made inroads, the army followed because there were difficulties that arose between the traders and the church and the native territories. So the army came in to protect the English. The English for a long time took pride in protecting their citizens no matter where the citizen was and in protecting the right of the citizens to engage in commerce freely as free men. And if the local ruler would break a, an agreement with an English company, an English gunboat would appear and he would regret that. So they taught the world the do business honorably, 
do it freely, exchange goods, and so forth. It was a rather complicated system, but it wasn't sat, it wasn't centrally planned. It developed, and at the end of those centuries, they had people who could speak the native languages. They had experts in administration. They raised men in Oxford and Cambridge along lines that we would, or, or let's say rugby and, and Westminster and so forth, along lines that we would never have done. They let the boys rule the schools. And they raised fellows who really knew how to get along with other men. Now, we don't have, we don't have an educated class of equal quality. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything about other cultures. We refuse to believe that they're not Americans. When uh, Livingston stated that we should go into these countries with Christianity, civilization, and commerce, he was really summing up something which went back generations to what you were talking about. The traders and the missionaries working all over the world. Now, long before uh, Livingston was born, the British had two societies, and I cannot recall the exact name of one, which was for the advancement of Christianity all over the world, and the other, the SPCK, the Society for the Promotion of Christian Knowledge. And both groups did remarkable work, and there was not a part of the world that they did not cover with their activity. People today are largely ignorant of those two societies. And uh, the SPCK has gone downhill dramatically. It's become quite modernistic. You and I have been to... We went there. Yes. yes. Uh, Primarily for the area in the back, which is owned by a private party, Mm. Higham or Hyam, I don't know how it's pronounced. Hyam, I believe. Hyam, well... Uh, very superior uh, dealer in used books. But the front part is still SBCK. And I couldn't find one uh, really good uh, study in their current work. But for a few centuries, they were outstanding in what they published and their influence was felt worldwide. Well, they were very sincere. You know, a lot of the empire was put together by the Scots. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you remember I spoke in, uh, I guess it was Edinburgh, about the cab driver that I talked to in Caracas who knew who I was and who said that he, I said, your English is better than my Spanish, and he said, your grandfather taught me. My grandfather, Philip Scott, taught English to the people in his office after hours. And he never mentioned it, and I never knew it. He never said a word about it. It was just something that he did. There was a responsibility involved in dealing with people who need to be trained, who need to be educated, and 
of course you could take advantage of, but you would be a damn poor man to do it, and it would be much better to build an enterprise. And he was one of the pioneers down there, the Royal Dutch Shell. <coughs> this aspect is what we have not followed. We have done an awful lot of lip service, and we've paid a great deal of attention to the sins of other countries. But we have not really followed through on this level, and we do lack an educated class. Well, the selfless work of some of these men, SPCK and other societies, and Scottish groups especially, fanning out all over the world, and uh, the standard that some of them who also helped in the uh, work of traders as a means of gaining entree into some areas was such that they created a, a remarkable group of native uh, peoples. For example, the Sikhs, uh, they were an elite group of uh, civil and military people working for the British Empire. The Gurkha Rifles, it was a privilege to belong to them, fierce and amazing fighters. And it is interesting that the Gurkha Rifles still retain their identity. Well, they fought in the Falklands. They frightened the Argentinians yes. out of their shoes. Yes. And... Uh, <laughs> Their uh, swordsmen go to Edinburgh for the tattoo there to perform with a great deal of pride. So a high standard of selfless and totally dedicated service was created. Well, the Americans are very charitable, but charity does not really do the job. What men have to learn is to how to work and how to be responsible. And I, I brought this up before. I hope I don't bore you with it again. Uh, when Froude went down to Africa, South Africa, in the 1860s, after he came back, he said, we're making a mistake in dealing with the black man. We're not treating him as a man. We're treating him as a younger brother. And he said, that's going to cause both of us trouble. Mm -hmm. We have to hold other people to the same standards we hold ourselves. That's been our failure also. Yes. Making Christianity viable means that you regard all people as having a common obligation under God. Exactly. That's really the Christian message. Yes. Well, we are seeing now the disintegration of Africa to a far greater degree than any publication will tell you. You find out about it with hints here and there or the correspondence of someone on the scene and you have the same disintegration in the Far East. India, as I mentioned earlier, 
is in an advanced state of decay and it might not take much to trigger it although someone has said it could take a generation but it could happen anytime so the UN has nothing to contribute except troops Christians have the key and we have to say that uh, we have an obligation to further the Christian faith in these countries and we have an obligation to tell these countries you've been receiving our money now you're going to treat our Christians with respect you're not going to kill them as they are doing and it's not publicized they are going to be protected by you. The American government has totally abandoned the idea of upholding any standard of conduct for any other country, excepting in the instance, for instance, well, let's take Kuwait. We went into Kuwait on the lie that Saddam was going to invade Saudi Arabia and therefore control the world oil supply. Now, that was a lie. I don't believe he had any such intention. He went into Kuwait because he considered Kuwait part of Iraq. It was traditionally part of Iraq, and he felt that he had a right to take it back. We did not protest at the behavior of of the Kuwaitis, either before that particular event or afterwards. And we all know that it is one of the most savage rules in the world. It is a terrible, terrible government. The story of the uh, atrocities by the Iraqis came from the Emir's family, and they were not substantiated. They were invented in order to inflame the American public. The, uh, you know, they were talking earlier about. Uh what we give to the uh, world in the way of aid, uh, just giving them money really winds up corrupting them. Well, it's the worst thing in the world. To put a man on the dole... They all hate us. Of course they hate us. Because we we have no respect for their culture. I remember an incident in Caracas in 1954... This fellow came over in the midst of a gathering and said, why are you against black people? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, Little Rock. I said, oh, well, Little Rock. I said, as a provincial city in the center of the country, backward place, it's not, uh, not to be taken as any, any example of our general behavior. He said, well, why doesn't the United States help Venezuela? I said, why should it? We're not in business to take care of you. He turned around and said, thank God, at last an American who makes sense. (laughs) And we don't make sense in the world because we don't tell the truth. Well, in the Sudan right now, things are falling apart. It's been a civil war there for some time. At times, Gaddafi has involved himself in it. 
Not too long after independence, they had massacred a hundred thousand Christians. We have no indication of what's happening now. We're rather cut off. But we know things are very bad there. Are we going to go into the Sudan next? Not to help Christians. Not to help Christians, no. No more than we help the Christian Ebos. A million of them may have died. I remember talking to the number two man on the uh, Asian desk at the State Department years ago on behalf of Goodyear. Goodyear plantations were being raided by marked communists and uh, their people were being killed. And they were Indonesians, of course. And I said, uh, does the State Department plan to do anything about this? This is when Sakarno was in power. And he said, well, Sakarno was not so bad. He recognizes his debts to us. I said, does he pay the interest or anything else? Nobody said he recognizes them. <laughs> and he said, the Goodyear people, he said, we really can't uh, organ- We can't operate on the basis of uh, working on behalf of a single corporation. He said, probably their mistake was in not granting some of the land rights and property rights in their plantation holdings with the Indonesians. Well, they got the plantations in 1918 when the Dutch owned the whole area and the Indonesians were not allowed to own land. And the stupidity of the comment by a man who was supposed to be an expert in the area irritated me to the point where I said, you're probably right, and we probably would have gotten to Jerusalem sooner during the Crusades if we'd used automobiles. (laughs) and that brought the conversation to a close Mm -hmm. and this was the Southeast Asia desk experts so you can see (laughs) we would never make good colonial power we don't know enough Uh and we haven't been serious about the subject well our time is drawing to a close Douglas do you have any Final Yeah, I was just thinking earlier, Rush, when you said uh, that uh, India uh, was governed by 5,000 British administrators. Now, India has three times our population, and we have 400,000 people uh, running this country. Uh, There's something that we didn't learn from the British that we had better find out about. Uh, That fact, by the way, if anyone wants to confirm it, is, I believe, in Gustav Stolper, S-T-O-L-P-E-R, This Age of Fable, published in the 30s. Good book. Yes. Excuse me. Well, that's it. I'm just... We... uh we we missed something, missed learning yes. something from the British about running a country. Isn't it strange that the more schools we have, the lower our level of education? Yes. Well, just something I've been thinking of during this whole conversation, the, na- the name of the missionary, David Livingston, came up a number of times. And uh, a few months ago, uh, there was a special... Uh, on one of the morning talk shows, Bryant Gumbel was the uh, the moderator of this special on on Africa, coincidentally, and um, 
he mentioned at some point, I just saw the, the, the sort of the introductory program or part of the introductory program, and when he got to the subject of, of David Livingston, he, he referred to him not as a missionary, but as the explorer David Livingston, mm-hmm. as though his, his there was no benevolent motive um, behind no, anything he did. conscious effort on the part of the media that is 100% to eliminate any reference to uh, good works by Christians. Any, yes. And anything good about Christians. Yes. It's yes. even to the point now where they, they try to cut off a conversation with an athlete after a game if they think he's going to, uh, as many athletes make try to make a point of, as I just, you know, thank God, mm-hmm. you know, that I, you know, um, for doing you know what he has for me or, or something to that effect, they'll try to cut o- it off. Or if they think it's headed in that direction, they'll try to. Cameramen are now instructed to cut away from any athlete that goes down on one knee to you know to say uh, a thank you prayer uh, for having made a mm-hmm. touchdown, and it happened in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.